0: You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Uh, my name is Heather Cook. It's been a while since I've been up on stage, and I've actually been out of church the last few weeks, uh, busy with um, some things at home. Um, Pastor Real told me just to introduce myself and read the scriptures, and my husband told me not to say anything to try to be funny. So um, I'm going to do that this morning. I'll be reading from Esther chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 11. After these things, when the anger of King Azaraz had abated, he re- he remembered Vashti and what she had done and had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces. Prov- Provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, of Benjamin, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was, bright, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own. So when the king's order and and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her to her young women to the best place in the Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Let's uh, pray this morning before Pastor Will comes to preach the word this morning. Father, um, I'm just so thankful to be here this morning, um, to be able to um, be here with my son and worship with you, Lord. to just be among um, my family, Lord, um, who have done nothing but love and care for us the last few months, especially the last few weeks. Um, Lord, I thank you so much for them, Lord. Um, I thank you for last week's sermon, Lord, that I just listened to two days ago. And I thank you, Lord, that um, even throughout Esther's Esther's story in the book of Esther, Lord, um, you may not be mentioned, Lord, but you are the unseen king. Lord, and I thank you that um, when we can't see you, when we can't feel you, when we can't hear you, Lord, that you are with us, Lord. Um, and every day that we have and every breath that we take, Lord, you are with us, Lord. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. I pray that you be with Pastor Will, Lord, as he comes to bring us the word this morning. I pray that you just hide him behind the cross, Lord, and that you will be glorified and lift, lifted up in all that he says and does this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: Thank you, Heather. <coughs> You can be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to go ahead and dismiss uh, our uh, first and second graders. Um, They are going to go with uh, Mary and Michael today, uh, right here at the back. And um, and so you guys are dismissed at this time. Uh, They'll they'll be going across the street. Remind you guys this is a little bit new for us. They'll be right across the street um, in the gymnasium. Um, And so, uh, don't forget to, uh, to get them. So, um, your kids are dismissed at this time. Now, um, as we, uh, as we look at Esther, um, I want you guys, if you, if you have it, grab, um, grab that Esther journal. Um, you can follow along. It's in the seat pocket in front of you. Um, and so feel free to take one of those if you don't have one. Um, and we, we're a little bit slow on getting those to you. We're in chapter two this week. And so we want to, um, apologize for that. Um, by the way, second through fourth grade, I got the, we got the class size wrong. So second through fourth grade is the, is the classes. Um, and they'll be in the gymnasium. I just got a text from Andrew. I was looking at that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> trying to trying to keep us in line. And so um, we, we're continuing in Esther. We're gonna be in Esther for nine weeks. We love uh, just preaching through books of the Bible here at our church. Um, but uh, we'll be back in Mark as soon as we're done with Esther and Mark is gonna finish out the year for us. So we're taking a quick summer break from the gospel of Mark. And um, we're going through Esther and I preached chapter one last week and tried to give just kind of the setting of everything. And um, as we prepare for chapter two, um, Heather read to you, um, this Persian version of The Bachelor and um, I've not watched The Bachelor so I called um, the, the, per, the one person I know that is an expert on The Bachelor and it's Pastor Jabes um, so I called him <clears throat> thinking it would be a short conversation he's very passionate about this TV show and so um, he, he explained to me how the show works and if you ha- if you're not familiar with it there's one guy and and, and there's like 30 women and they go on all these like weird group dates together. And then and then, you know, there are roses given out in some kind of weird ceremony and they're eliminated. It's kind of like Survivor for the dating world. And um, and James is super passionate about it. Actually, he would love to talk to you all about it. Um, if you want to go grab coffee with Pastor James and talk about The Bachelor, um, he, he knows every bachelor. He remembers them all. He follows them on Twitter and all those things. And so what was interesting, though, as he was passionately describing this TV show to me, is um, most notably, I asked him, I said, do these like do these relationships ever work out? Because I didn't know it ended in like a marriage proposal. I was like, this is serious stuff. And uh, so they were like proposing marriage. And he's like, no, most of them, <clears throat> a lot of them don't even actually even end up getting married. There's a proposal, but they don't get married. And then the ones that do get married end up, uh, you know, if you follow after them, they end up getting divorced soonly a- soon after. And he, and he said, only a small percentage of them have actually lasted. And I was like, that's not really that surprising given the, the you know, the strategy of the show. But here you you have in Esther chapter two, kind of the same thing happening. And, um, it's a bunch of women coming um, and, and these, these virgins are brought into, uh, they're actually seized and against their will maybe or um, uh, without any input from them, they're brought into the king's uh, quarters for him to give a, a trial run of to find a new queen. Now, if you remember chapter one, uh, let me just recap briefly. Uh, Ahasuerus, the king, he's also known as Xerxes in secular history. That's his Greek name. Um, he's in the history books more commonly as Xerxes. If We're reading from the English Standard Version. If you've got like an NIV Bible, I think the NIV actually says Xerxes. Same guy, <clears throat> just a, a Greek name and a Persian name. Um, but as we look at this, he, he throws this six-month party in chapter one to kind of display his, his wealth and his power, and, and he's very prideful. Um, and then um, at the culmination of this six-month party, his bride refuses to show up um, and, and expose herself to his guests. And so in his drunken lustfulness, he gets angry. And he takes counsel from these people and they remove Queen Vashti and it says they will select a better queen than her. Um, And so if you got um, one of those journals, you want to write these down, I have four points in today's sermon. You can kind of follow the outline with me. That way you know when I'm almost done. Um, And what we see is three things lacking in this chapter and one thing that's in abundance. We're gonna look at a lack of wisdom, faithfulness, and conviction. We see these things lacking in the characters of the book of Esther. Remember, I compared it to a soap opera last week. You have this unfolding narrative, there's drama, there's murder, there's love, there's all these things, but you see these characteristics that are godly lacking in three main characters in chapter two, but, um, but you're going to see shadows of an abundance of grace from the unseen king, Jesus. And so let's look at the first one, a lack of wisdom. This is primarily uh, what we see in Ahasuerus, the king. Um, Ahasuerus displays a lack of wisdom by entering into the bachelor uh, Persia edition in the first place. Um, at our staff meetings weekly, we've been studying the book of Proverbs together. We've just been starting our week uh, by jumping into Proverbs and reading about what God's word has to say to us about wisdom. And uh, what we see is in Proverbs, Solomon compares foolishness to a temptress or a seductress or an adulteress who is luring young men away from the straight and narrow path of God into sin. Um, she's always in the shadows. She's always in secret. She's always um, conniving. And, and then you also see in chapter eight of Proverbs, wisdom personified as a woman and she's in public and she's she's not sneaky or hiding. She's calling out to young men in, in a public admonition to come and follow the ways of the Lord. And what we see, in Esther chapter 2 shows a king who follows after foolishness rather than wisdom. In verse 16 of this chapter, if you want to just glance at that briefly, uh, we're told this critical point is that all of this happens in the seventh year of the king's reign. And given that, we know in chapter one, it gives us a time frame also. Chapter one happens in year three of Ahasuerus' reign. And so that means that four years pass between chapter one and chapter two of the book of Esther. Now, we don't pick up on that in our English translations, and a lot of times we don't pay attention to those dates because we kind of skip over those things. But it's important to know that four years pass in between that, and the Bible doesn't give us insight into what happens. But guess what? Secular history does. We know that in that four year time period, between year three and year seven of his reign, he gathered the largest army known up to that point to launch an attack on Greece. If you know your history, the Greek empire is ultimately going to overtake the Persian empire. So being proactive, Ahasuerus wants to attack the city of Greece and and make an offensive advance on them. And he gathers the largest army in what should be a victory, biggest army that's ever been assembled up to that point in history. And he goes and he attacks Greece and he is defeated in a famous battle. He's defeated and he comes home defeated, lonely, dejected, depressed. And so his boys come up with a plan. Yeah, King Xerxes has been kind of mopey lately ever since he lost to Greece. And so he comes back home. Hey, remember that time we we were supposed to replace Vashti and get him a good queen in here? We still haven't done that. Let's let's offer some advice. And we see the advice in verse 2. It says, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Now, in case you didn't catch this, this is not wise counsel. Amen. This is more like locker room talk. And so let's find as many pretty girls as we can in the, in the empire and let's bring them to King Xerxes. What this shows, one thing that this, this chapter shows us is the importance of intergenerational ministry in the church. Um, I, one of the most beautiful things that I love about New Heights Church is that like in our small groups, we see people who are young and newly married or have young children with elderly saints in our, in our groups um, I, I remember uh, Miss Teresa sitting at my living room table holding Judah when he was a baby and just thinking, what world would Miss Teresa be hanging out with Judah? All right? If you all know Judah, you know just the, the beauty of that picture. And, and, and what, what this shows us is that as God's people, we're called into a family. You know what families have? They have great grandmothers, grandmothers, mothers, daughters, great grandfathers, ga- grandfathers, fathers, sons, that, that there is a lineage. There is a gener- intergenerational communication within a family and God describes his kingdom as a family. And so I've heard lots of times like, Hey, we're, we part of the church and I want a church that's got a lot of young people. or I want a church that's got people in my same season of life. I want, and, and so what we do as a church is we try to like market ourselves as like with the best programs. We've got the best kids ministry. Like I can't even get the age groups right when I'm dismissing the kids. Right. So I'm trying my best, but like, and it, okay, I want to find a, a church with a group for like senior adults so we can go to the Amish country together. Or I want to find a, a church with, you know, a group of, of young single college students so we can actually grow in the Lord together. It's like, young, if you're a young single college student, listen to me very clearly. You need old people in your life. You need to, you need to have people that, that pour into you and bring wisdom to you. You need those things in your life. And so we don't just segment ourselves and segregate ourselves based on season of life or how old we are or whatever. Um, And if if King Ahasuerus had had some of that wisdom, like Titus 2 says, older women in the church train younger women, older men in the church train younger men. If Ahasuerus had had some of that kind of wisdom, maybe he wouldn't have entered into the bachelor game show. But instead he goes down into the foolishness of bringing as many virgins into his quarters as he possibly can. And so what we see is this kind of uh, snowball effect of of this sin and depravity, and it leads to him being a poor and foolish king. And so I want to ask you, how do you make decisions in your life? Who's your wise counsel? Who do you go to? Do you have older people who have been through the seasons of life that you're in right now that you can go to and say, hey, how did you do this? How did you navigate this? I need help with this. You see, good leaders are selfless leaders. But Ahasuerus here surrounds himself with yes-men who will give him what he wants rather than what he needs. And Ahasuerus lacks wisdom. Uh, We're going to see another character here who lacks faithfulness. And so where uh, we see a lack of wisdom in Ahasuerus, we see a lack of faithfulness in a guy named Mordecai. Now, I know in the cursory reading of this chapter, you're like, what did Mordecai do wrong, right? I'm going to bust on all these characters. Y'all just wait so Jesus gets the glory, okay? But Mordecai is a Jew who is in exile. And, um, and, and I think in a sense, we've all kind of experienced this exile-like feeling. We've, we've, we, you know Last year, we all locked down due to COVID and we did church online and that was weird and different. And some people just got content with that. And some of us felt a longing to get back together. And, um, and, and when you are in exile, your faith is really tested, isn't it? it it's, are, are you really going to hold, are you going to pick up your Bible for a whole year? right? Like we, we, COVID hit and some people just let the dust gather on their Bibles. And it's like, so so, are, is our faith tested? Are we going to actually do what the Lord tells us to do even when the going gets tough? And I don't know. I'm preaching to the choir, right? Y'all are here. Y'all quit yelling at me. But every pastor I talk to, I talk to different pastors every week. Every pastor I talk to is exhausted and tired. Uh, we're leaving right after church to go to a conference in Nashville after this. And People are worn out, and every pastor I talk to, their, their churches are smaller, less people are attending, but I don't think the church is smaller. I think, I think some of the people who are displaying a weaker faith have just kind of fallen by the wayside, and the world will be faithless, but church, listen to me, you're not of the world. You are called to display a great faith and a great God because he is greatly faithful even when it is immensely difficult for you, Amen. You serve a king who has done all the hard stuff for you, so there's nothing that can touch you. And no one expects righteousness from the world. No one expects faithfulness from the world. No one expected Persia to be serving the one true God. But you you should expect that from God's people, people like Mordecai. Look at verse 5, the first half of that verse. It says, now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai. Now, any Jew reading this, particularly in the first century and before, back to the fourth century BC, when they read this, this would have immediately screamed to them disobedience. And we look at that and we're like, hey, what's the big deal? The author's just giving us the setting of the book. But in reality, the the author is showing us a couple of lacking areas in Mordecai's life. Namely, number one, that there was a Jew in Susa was against the will of God. It may not have been necessarily sinful to remain, and we can certainly understand why he remained. He had lived there his whole life. Everything he knew, his job, his house, all of his possessions, all of his stuff was in Susa. And and the the king had already decreed that Jews could return to Israel, to Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were returning. They were rebuilding the temple at this time. They were rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Uh, Israel was being built. They were making Jerusalem great again. Why didn't he go back? Well, because you guys know moving sucks, doesn't it? (laughs) Can I get a witness on that? If you can't amen nothing else, y'all ought to be able to amen that. There are two things the Lord hates it's buying cars and moving. Maybe those two things I hate, I don't know. But what happens here is Mordecai does not carry out what the Bible told him to. Let me prove it to you. These won't be on the screen, but in Jeremiah 29, God gave very clear instructions before the people were carried away into Babylon. He gave clear instructions as to how long they were gonna be in exile and what they were supposed to do at the end of the exile. He prophesied the whole thing. Jeremiah 29, starting at verse four, the Lord of hosts says to the, the God of Israel, he says to them, to all exiles, listen what the Lord's message is, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Maybe Mordecai did a good job at that, but the Lord keeps going. In verse 10, he says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, he gives them the time frame. He says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. Listen to this and bring you back to this place. And then here's our hallmark verse that we buy and hang in our kitchens. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God told them beforehand, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. I mean, some of y'all are going to die off. You're going to have kids and grandkids. You need to teach the word to them. And when that's over, I'm going to work on a pagan king, and I'm going to make sure that he issues a decree that you can move back to Jerusalem and Israel, and repopulate the land that I gave to your forefathers. And when I do that, you need to go back. Verse 14, he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Mordecai did not go back as the word of God commanded him to do. He remained. He and Esther remained in the land of pagans even though God had called them back home. Now we can understand that, right? We remain in stuff that God calls us out of all the time because it's too comfortable for us, or maybe maybe the, the effort is too great for us to go where God calls us to go, or maybe the cost is too high for us to go where God is going, go, or maybe the discomfort seems too much for us to bear to go where God calls us to go, but when God moves, he calls us into obedience regardless of your feelings on it. He's not asking your opinions on his plan. He doesn't need your help in his great sovereignty. And so the first problem that we see is, in the lack of faithfulness is that there was a Jew in Susa in the first place. The second thing that we see that's a problem is his name was Mordecai. And Mordecai represents the spiritual decay of his family. For him to even be named Mordecai meant that his family had evolved or maybe devolved into this lack of worship of the one true God. Mordecai, the name Mordecai means honor to Marduk, who's the chief Babylonian and Persian god. And so so as he is being brought up in this family, his family names him not honoring Yahweh, but honoring Marduk. Which shows us that he's maybe not even been raised in the tradition to honor the one true God or to worship him. We don't, know if, we don't know if there's any sort of like, we don't know if he's on a, like a Bible plan. We don't know if he's praying every day. You know, we see examples in exile like Daniel where he's kneeling and praying toward Jerusalem three times a day. We get no mention of that about Mordecai or Esther or any other Jews in this story. And so the book makes no mention of God explicitly. And furthermore, we see no explicit carrying out of religion from the main characters in this. We, we see glimpses of it later, but initially we don't see any of that. And what it leads me to believe is that God takes people who are not being obedient and makes them obedient. Isn't that what our God does? Amen? He finds us in our disobedience and he calls us into faithfulness when we were faithless. Esther in, in verse eight <clears throat> says, was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. This even brings doubts about Mordecai's character, right? Like a good dad, that's what, like should know. When the royal guard comes to take your daughter to have sex with the king, that's what shotguns are for, right? Amen? Like, you don't just let your daughters be taken away. And he just seemingly, okay, y'all take her. But in all of this mess and lack of faithfulness, there's this glimmer of hope. You see him in verse 10 and 11, you see him going to the king's palace gate and looking in and checking on her, making sure she's still there making sure she's still healthy. And the beauty of the whole book of Esther is you see people like you and me You don't see sinless people in the story of Esther you don't see people that don't have flaws and failures you see messed up jacked up sinners who are who are living in God's plan whether they want to or not and God bringing them along in sanctification and they have glimmers of goodness in them because the Christian life is not that you do a bunch of bad stuff like like the like the Christian camp testimony I used to do all this bad stuff and now I do all this good stuff praise Jesus like it's a lot it's a lot more complicated than that ain't it I don't know about how y'all's week went, but mine, mine was a lot more complicated than that. Like every week I've got junk that I drag in here and I have to leave it at the foot of the cross and beg God to forgive me for my sins because I don't just only do good stuff once I come to Jesus. It's this weird mixture of good and bad. And that's what you see in Mordecai and Esther, good and bad and good and bad, and they kind of go back and forth. And I hate to break it to you, but yes, even Esther, the heroine of this story, She's not, she's not the hero of this story. She's got some major flaws. So point three is a lack of conviction that we see from Esther. I told you, ladies, I was going to ruin, ruin Esther for y'all. I already ruined Ruth. Now, we, Yeah, let's go, Heather. We're already, we're, we already ruined Ruth. Let's ruin Esther for y'all, too. Let me preface this point with this. We want to read the Bible with a Christocentricity meaning that because of what Jesus told us when he rose from the dead, he told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the whole Bible's about me. All the Old Testament, he tells them, all the Old Testament is pointing to me. I'm the center of the whole thing. That means that Esther, which makes no mention of God, nobody prays, nobody reads the Bible, that Esther is about Jesus somehow. The Bible has no hero and needs no hero other than Jesus. I want you to take that home with you. Let me say it again. The Bible has no hero and needs no hero other than Jesus. Amen, church? It's not Esther, all right? Esther actually displays, at least in chapter two, a lack of conviction. Esther, in verse 10, it says, had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Esther and Mordecai both decide to conceal her ethnicity, now, by, that might not seem like a huge deal to us, but by concealing her ethnicity, it meant more in that time, in fourth century BC, by concealing her ethnicity, she concealed her faith. She, in, in a land of polytheism, where they worshiped many gods, by concealing her ethnicity, she concealed the fact that she worshiped Yahweh, the one true God. And so she concealed her faith as well as her heritage. It stands in stark contrast to other exiles, that lived in the same type of environment. Guys like Daniel, who said, you can throw me into the lions then if you want, and if I'm eaten by lions, I'm not gonna deny my God. Or guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are thrown into a fiery furnace because they say, if we die, we die. Our God's able to save us, but if he doesn't, we will never deny who we are. We're part of his kingdom. And hiding her ethnicity would have been like concealing her faith. And we can understand why she would, right? can understand why she would do that. Perhaps she feared for her life, but revealing her Jewish descent would have allowed her to not be seized in the first place, probably, and not be taken to the harem. But once there, she's forced with this even more difficult decision, not just whether or not to tell them that she's Jewish, but to whether or not to submit to the king's sexual wishes. She could submit to those sexual encounters or she can face unknown consequences, maybe even death. Let's read verses 12 through 15. When the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying. Sometimes I, feel, I got three girls in my house. Uh, sometimes I feel like it takes them six months or 12 months to get ready. Um, yeah, some, yeah. <laughs> six months with, well, that's all I'll say. I'll just keep reading the Bible. The Bible's safe six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. And when the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now I want you to listen closely to this. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. Notice he's not in charge of the virgins. He's in charge of the concubines. It's the second harem. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by a name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Esther was winning favor, not because she was in the harem reading her Bible every, every night, she was winning favor because of her beauty. I think the text makes that clear. And it's, it's, it's really disgusting what's happening here. It's so much worse than The Bachelor. Um, every, every night, there was a different virgin that would be escorted into the king's quarters, and she would go to impress him sexually. The, the text makes that abundantly clear, that they would leave the virgin's harem, spend the night with the king, and when they exited, it doesn't give us all the, all the details, thankfully, but when they exited, they were no longer allowed to be with the pure virgins. They were instead escorted to a second harem, this guy Shashgaz, who's hanging out with the concubines, and they would be welcomed by these concubines. And I just want you to imagine with me the walk of shame that these women were subjected to. These women who are created in the image of God with love and grace are escorted in to submit to this perverted king's wishes, and then the next morning are forced to leave in the same clothes they had on the previous night and walk to a different harem to a different group of women. The entire process is so much worse than The Bachelor. It's a detestable strategy from a lustful king. Now, you can think what you will about when it comes to Esther's turn, but I'll go ahead and give you my opinion. My opinion is that they did have sex. Um, there's a 2006 cinematic film that was made called A Night with the King, and I've not seen that, um, but in that... That was in, in uh, th- movie theaters nationwide. In that movie, um, the filmmakers kind of take the position that Esther wins the king's love with her heart rather than her body. However, I think it's clear from the text that the king's intentions are sexual. Um, we're not given the details of that night, uh, but I think, I think Esther does compromise here. And again, we understand why, right? She's, she's fearful. She doesn't know what's going to happen, but she doesn't have that kind of faith where I'm, I'm willing to die if I have to. But here's the, here's the saving grace in the whole thing. She doesn't have the faithfulness to say, if I die, I die. But two chapters later, she will utter those exact same words. If you know the story of Esther, she's gonna have to go to the king later with a big request, unannounced, uninvited in the king's presence. And she's gonna mutter this line that is beautiful and resounds. And it's the climax of the book when she goes to the king and she says, I'll go request this. And if I perish, I perish. And what's beautiful about the whole process is that it shows us that Esther has progressed in her faith to where she gets to the point that she's willing to die for her God and reveal who she is, which is not where we find her in chapter two. What's amazing is that God uses her lack of conviction in his grand plan. He uses it to increase her Faith personally, and he uses it to advance his sovereign plan. You see, let me, let me apply this to you, Christian. God is not pleased with your sin. Let me make that very clear to you. God's not pleased with any compromise in your life, but he wants it to be sanctifying to you. He wants your mistakes and flaws and failures to be things that you build on and grow from rather than remain in. And I think the story of Esther is a story of weakened, exiled faith being strengthened by grace, strengthened by an unseen king in the story named Jesus. Jesus is the greater Mordecai, where Mordecai comes and he's checking on Esther and looking to see if she's doing okay. Jesus sees everything you do and the sin that you hide from everyone else, Jesus sees it and he's using it to build you up into a royal inheritance that's greater than what you could ever imagine. He's calling you in sanctification to be more obedient next week than you are this week. And isn't, isn't the picture of Esther beautiful and that we, we see ourselves in that? Not that we are the hero or heroine of our own story, but that, that God did not choose us because we were the most faithful in the land. Esther doesn't become queen because she reads her Bible and prays a lot. Esther becomes queen because of her encounter with the king that is not pleasing to God. But God uses those circumstances for his glory. And in the same way, you didn't become a Christian because you did all the right things. You became a Christian because you were doing all the wrong things and God wanted to set you straight. And God got a hold of you and God drew you into his family and praise be to God that he has set you on a different course, amen? Is anybody tracking with me? That this is good news that we see in Esther our own story, that we, we have flaws and failures all throughout our lives. We have a king who brings us in, not because of what we've done, but because of what he wants to make us into. It's good news that Esther here, she's not necessarily doing everything exactly right, but God throughout this book is going to sanctify her and use her in a great way. Verse 16 says, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes, that's good, right, to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This leads us to the abundance of grace that we see. And the abundance of grace doesn't just come from the characters in this story, it comes from the God of this story. The abundance of grace is seen in the unseen king, Jesus. We see Esther's feast in verse 18, and we see God's providence. He's got the whole thing rigged, amen? Uh, what, what you see in this book is a series of coincidences, and I have to use air quotes when I say that, a series of coincidences because God is making sure that all the things fall into place for his ultimate glory and to save his people. And another coincidence happens at the end of this, and, and it's beautiful that God makes sure that they unknowingly crown someone from God's family into one of the most powerful roles in the kingdom. In verse 19, we, we see this story. By the way, you just need to like... You know, circle this or whatever. We're going to come back to this later in Esther. This is going to be important. This is like law and order SVU, foreshadowing stuff. Like This is like the black and white scene. You just need to remember this. That's all I'll say about it today. It says, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, being a good dad here. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting by the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, those just sound like villains on Ninja Turtles. Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Ahasuerus was not deserving to have his life spared here, but he has shown grace by God's people Mordecai and Esther we should show the same grace to wicked people in our lives. Amen? people in our lives who are lost, who are far from Christ, we should extend grace to them because we have had grace extended to us. And what we see in the story of Esther is the only people in the whole book who get what they deserve are the people who are hanged in the book. The people who end up on the gallows are the only people that get what they deserve. And, and, and if we're honest, that's, that's what we're all deserving of. Because of our sin that separates us from a holy God, we're all eternally separated from him, unable to jump that gulf to get back in a good relationship with God because of our depravity. But through his grace, he brings us close. And it's only through this abundance of grace that we can have a relationship with him. He gives us grace through royal generosity that we see foreshadowed in verse 18. The king has this great generosity. He throws a feast. And it says it was Esther's feast. It says he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces. Isn't that good? We all love the stemming. Amen. Thank God for that. And especially when you got five kids. Hallelujah. Um, and, so, and it was, uh, and, and he, so he granted a remission of taxes to the provinces. And it says he gave gifts with royal generosity. Ahasuerus cannot compare to Jesus. This is going to be a repeated theme. The king of Persia cannot compare to the king of creation. That he gives this feast again. He displays his power through feasts. Our king displays his power through an ongoing feast that we celebrate every Sunday at our church called communion. A feast for his people. Not for people outside of his kingdom, but a feast for those of us who have been adopted into his kingdom. A feast for us and and the meal is himself. He says, this is my body and my blood to remember the the price that it took to bring you into my kingdom, to make you a citizen of my kingdom. This is what it took. And he's welcomed us freely. He's granted a remission greater than a stimulus check or a, a tax credit. He's paid for your sins. And the price was his own life. He atoned for sin, paying our debt. And as we come to him, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we come with brokenness, unworthiness, acknowledging that we are unworthy to be in his kingdom. But yet he's called us anyway. We see in Mordecai, someone who's unfaithful, yet God's gonna bless him. We see in Esther, someone who is an orphan, whose trajectory is not favorable and who lacks bravery and conviction. And we're going to see God is going to bring her bravery. It doesn't come from herself. You see this beautiful narrative of weak people being strengthened by a great God is the same story that lives in each of us today. That the church is not strong because of the strong people that are members of it. The church is strong because of our strong savior. And we worship him every Sunday by bringing him our weakness and saying, we know we're weak. We want to lean on your strength.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out past sermons on the app.